Well, this summer we will be studying uh, the big ideas of Scripture. We'll be studying God or theology, as we said. And the the idea is this. Uh, If you know more about God, it helps you to know God. And knowing God is the point. That's the whole point of life, right? So to give you a little bit of uh, context for how we're going to approach this study this summer, uh, theologians tend to try to tackle the same problem from multiple angles. And so there, there are four kind of major approaches to theology. Biblical theology historical theology, dogmatic theology, and systematic theology. Biblical theology is looking at uh, what we can learn about God from a particular book of the Bible or section of the Bible or from a particular author. So uh, what does Genesis have to say about God and man and sin and salvation? Or what does the Pentateuch have to say about these topics? Or what is Pauline theology on salvation or something like that? That's uh, biblical theology. Historical theology is looking at the the church's development of its understanding of a particular topic through time. So how did the church's understanding of the nature and work of Jesus Christ grow, and how did they articulate that understanding through time? That's historical theology. Dogmatic theology is looking at the historical tradition of uh, a denomination, say. So what's, what's Anglican theology, or Baptist theology, or Lutheran theology? That's dogmatics. And then systematic theology is looking at topics from the perspective of all of Scripture. So what does all of Scripture teach us about angels or sin or something like that? That's the approach that we're going to go after this summer. So as you're walking in the welcome desk, there was a calendar. If you want to know what topics and who will be covering which topics for the summer, all three campuses are laid out there or on these two little stands as you exit through the back. You can find those. Uh, during the summer, if you're new to Grace, we rotate our teaching pastors a bit more so that guys who don't get a chance to preach much can get an opportunity and also so that other guys like me can get some vacation. So I will be uh, preaching actually here uh, quite a bit, but then also I'll be over at Southwood four or five times and I'll be at Creekside a couple times. What that means for you is if I give a particularly good sermon, you could hear it three times if you wanted. Or if you don't want to hear it three times, then you better pay attention to the schedule so you don't uh, overlap, okay? So... This morning we're going to try to tackle the Trinity. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17. Uh, Very early in my kids' lives, I discovered that they love to ask difficult theological questions. They say, Dad, who wrote the Bible? Well, actually, there were multiple authors through time, and really, you know, the Holy Spirit was speaking through, the whole, through these human authors in their language and their culture, and, you know, okay, that's enough, Dad. <laughs> Is it true? How do you know it's true? Dad, how do you know that the disciples didn't just make all this stuff up about Jesus? Dad, is, is the devil real? Is the devil here right now? Can, can the devil hear what I'm saying to you? Does the devil know what I'm thinking? Some pretty challenging theological questions. Why do we have three gods? In Sunday school class today, the Sunday school teacher said that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God. Dad, you said that we just have one God, but it sounds like we have three gods. Which is it? Is it three or is it one? (laughs) Yes. Yes. How do you make sense of that? How do you answer those questions? Uh, A couple observations. Uh, First, kids can be very literal. And theology is often kind of abstract, which makes it difficult. I, I remember distinctly as a child... A Sunday school teacher saying that I needed to ask Jesus into my heart. And I, I can remember thinking, 
but he's so big. How, how could he fit, right? Did you, did you ever think that? How could he fit? And when I finally set that question aside, I just imagined Jesus having a room somewhere inside my body and he had a chair and he was sitting on that chair. I, very, I was thinking very concretely and kids tend to do that. At the same time, children can often tolerate more ambiguity and mystery than adults are willing to tolerate. So Jesus said to a group of adults, you need to come to me just like children would come. Just trust me. Trust me. Now, that being said, we do trust God. But we also need to deeply understand what it means that God's a Trinitarian God. Because that's who God is. That's fundamental to the nature of God. And we also need to understand, I believe, why, why does it matter? Why is it important? So on each theological topic... I've challenged each of, the, each of the guys who's speaking to, to get to the point of relevance. Why does it matter that this particular theology is true? In our case, why does it matter that God is a triune God? My favorite book on the Trinity, actually the only book on the Trinity I ever really, really enjoyed reading, is called Delighting in the Trinity. Brian White gave it to me a couple of years ago. So I, if you want to dig more into this, I'd highly recommend it. It's by Michael Reeves. He said, What is the Christian life about? Mere behavior or something deeper? Enjoying God? Our churches, our marriages, our relationships, our mission are all molded in the deepest way by what we think of God. All of life is lived in the context of relationships. That's life. That's how we live. That's who we are. It's what makes life rich and satisfying. And all of those relationships ultimately have as their perfect model the relationships that have always existed between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the relationships within the Trinity, Trinitarian theology, matters in a sense for all of life because all of life is lived in the context of relationships. So what does it mean then that God is triune? And can we think a little bit more deeply about why it matters? Uh, Sometimes I find it helpful to, to think about my own theology in comparison to the theology of other religions. So, for much of the world, uh, over a billion people, God is not one, but God is many. Over a billion people are are polytheistic in their worldview. Lots of different gods. Hindus are polytheistic. In Hinduism, there are over 300 million gods. I wonder, do they all even know one another, right? Have they all met? Uh, Are they concerned about one another in any way? In fact, uh, if you read the Hindu writings, what you find is often they're, in fact, in conflict with one another. In other words, there's no unity within this pantheon of 300 million gods. They're not unified in purpose. They're not unified in personality. They are disunified. And one has to think, if these 300 million gods can somehow affect the history of the world or my personal history and my life, I would hope that, in fact, they were unified and they all wanted the same thing for history, for humanity, for me, and that what they wanted was actually good. I'd want to know that. But you don't find that in a polytheistic worldview. There is disunity. Monotheistic religions solve that problem of disunity. God is one and God is only one. This is reflected in Islam. Solving the problem of disunity, there is a unified God because he is just one. As it says in the Quran, he is Allah, the one and only, Allah, the eternal, absolute. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. He is singular. 
We've solved the problem of disunity, but now how do you have a relationship with such a God? According to Islamic tradition, there are 99 names for God. One of those is Allah the the loving. But we have to ask, how can Allah love? Remember, before uh, creation actually happened, uh, Allah was alone. Completely alone. There was nothing and there was no one. So how could he love? Because love is, at its very essence, something that is outgoing. It is toward another. So Allah couldn't, by his nature, love. He had to create in order to learn how to love. He had to create certain objects that could receive love, that he could give love to, and in the process discover what it meant to love. It wasn't in his nature because he was singular. In Christianity, we believe that God is one, but God is also three. That is, God is unified in his personality, in his nature, in his purposes, but God is also three. That is, uh, at his very core, God is a relational God. Again, let's go back to before time began, before anything was created. What was God doing? I want you to read with me in John chapter 17 and verse 24. Jesus, speaking to his father, said, Father, I desire that they also, that is those whom you have given me, that they be with me where I am so that they may see me, so they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he created anything? He was delighting in the relationships within the Trinity. Father was delighting in Son, and Son was delighting in Father. The Father was delighting in the Spirit, and the Spirit was delighting in the Father. The Spirit was delighting in the Son, and the Son was delighting in the Spirit, as God is love. Father, I want them to experience what I experienced forever before time began, and that is the love that you had for me and the love that I have for you. See, God is both one, but God is also three, and the result is. God is a relational God. So what does it mean God is triune? Well, not surprisingly, it means three things. It means there is only one God. The one and only God is also three persons. And therefore, the three persons are one God. Okay, There's only one God. The one and only God is three persons, and the three persons are one God. God is a trinity. Now, if you're a diligent reader of your Bible, maybe uh, you start at the beginning and you do the one-year plan, you begin at Genesis and work your way through the whole Pentateuch and into the Psalms and Proverbs and the Prophets and get all the way to the Gospels and the Epistles and Revelation, you finish and maybe you do that on an annual basis or periodically you just go back through and you have discovered that nowhere in the Bible does it use the word trinity. You go, well, that's, that's kind of unusual given the fact that that's fundamental to the very nature of God that we don't discover that word. Where does it come from? Well, church father Tertullian was one of the first to try to develop a vocabulary for talking about a Trinitarian God. He he grabbed that Latin word, Trinitas, Trinity. As he looked at Scripture and he read from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again, he began to deduce, this is the nature of God. And the other church fathers began to deduce, this is the nature of God. This is who God is. We see that there is just one God, but God is three persons. All are God. Three persons, but one God. Clearly laid out in Scripture, and they wrestled to develop the vocabulary 
to describe it and to understand it. So let's go through scripture and unpack each of these three points. First, there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is where your mind should first go to. It's the great Shema of Israel. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema is from the first word there. Hear, listen, Israel, listen up. This is the, the central tenet of our faith. We believe in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Jesus echoed this when he was asked what the great commandment is. Mark chapter 12, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And this central truth is traced throughout the entire Bible. One illustration, Isaiah chapter 45, the Lord speaking, he said, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all of the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's just one God. Apostle Paul echoed the same theme, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Those idols, they're they're just idols. They are, in the Hebrew terminology, they're vanities. They're breath, they're emptiness, they're actually nothing. They don't represent anything that is God because there is just one God. There's only one. Second, the one and only God is also three persons. There is only one God, but the one and only God is three persons. And the three persons are distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Son. They are three distinct persons. Now, this is harder to draw out of the Old Testament, but we see uh, some hints of it. Beginning in Genesis, God said, Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Now, a lot of uh, explanations have been attempted to understand that apart from Trinitarianism. Uh, Some have said, well, God was speaking of himself and the angelic host around him. Let us make man in our image. But man is not made in the image of angels. Man is only made in the image of God. I think it's just a hint. It's just a beginning of a foreshadowing of a Trinitarian God. Another illustration of a hint of this in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 45 Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You say, well, Brian, where's where's Trinitarianism in that? Well, listen carefully to that last line. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. God is anointing God. We know now from our perspective that that is the Father anointing the Son. Comes out much more clearly uh, in the New Testament. New Testament, we see all three persons, and at times we see all three persons together, but being separate. Christ's baptism is a great illustration. Where do we find Jesus? Well, Jesus is standing in the water. But then the Father speaks from heaven. As the Father speaks from heaven, the Spirit comes down in the form of the dove. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And neither is the Son. They are three persons. Three distinct persons. All equally God. Turn with me to John chapter 20 and verse 17. 
John chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Jesus said to Mary, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I send to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Jesus says the Father is God. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answered and he said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Thomas fell on his knees and he worshiped Jesus and Jesus didn't raise him up as the angel did in the book of Revelation say, whoa, 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 don't worship me. I'm not God. Jesus says, well done. (laughs) You're in the right place to be on your knees and worshiping me because I am God. That's how Jesus could say in John chapter eight, before Abraham was born, I am. I am the eternally existent Son of God. I am God. I am equal to the Father. And the Spirit is God. He is the Spirit from God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit which is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And therefore, the three persons are one God. Our church, our mission, is the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is a Trinitarian mission. That is our our job. Our job is to help people identify with the Trinitarian God. Hey, remember, Matthew chapter 28 is where Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I I recognize that I'm probably one of just like three people in the room that love grammar. but And I didn't always love grammar, but I love grammar now. And I love grammar now because often... It's really theologically important to see grammar in a particular passage. There's meaningful grammar in Matthew chapter 28. Notice, Jesus says, baptize them. That is, identify them with the name, singular, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, but they have one name. And in theological terms, name is just shorthand for talking about the person, that is, the nature and the attributes, the purpose of that person. And what Jesus is telling us is, Father, Son, Spirit, share a name. Okay? One name, three persons. Because the three are actually one. Well, there it is. That's Trinitarian theology. We've described it, but, but how, do you actually, how do you understand it? How do you understand it? How do you explain it? Late 4th century, uh, Gregory of Nazanius wrote this. Great theologian of the church. He said, When I speak of God, you must be illuminated at once by one flash of light and by three. Three in individualities or hypostases or persons, but one in respect of the substance, that is, the Godhead. For they are divided without division. If I may say so, they are united in division. He wanted to help the church understand the Trinity. And I say, Gregory, thanks. It's, that's wonderful. It's all cleared up now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how theologians write. What are you talking about? The church has always struggled to find the language to explain the mystery of three in one. And so what we've done is, from time to time, we, we try to boil it down, and make it, make it manageable, right? Dad, I thought we, we had one God, but it sounded like in Sunday school there are three gods. So which is it? Is it three or it's one? 
And I say, well, son, the Trinity's like an egg. <laughs> there's a shell, hard and crumbly on the outside. And then there's a well, white and a yolk, right? But three different parts, but just one egg. Mm, somehow that leaves us dissatisfied, right? Because those three parts are really very different by, by nature. And, and there's nothing personal about it. Okay, we'll try this one on. The Trinity, it's like water. It's like water, right? And the Father is like a solid, cold, hard thing. No, well, just don't worry about that. But the, imagine this, the ice is, that's like the Father. And then heat up the Father a bit and you get liquid, the sun. And heat up the sun a little bit more and sun turns into vapor and becomes the Spirit. The problem is that actually kind of illustrates one of the early forms of heresy in the church. It's called modalism. That is, there's just one God and he shows up in three different modes. Sometimes he's the father. And then he stops being the father and then sometimes he's the son. And then he stops being the son and then he shows up as the spirit. But we're saying no, father, son, and spirit always, always coexist. Three persons, one God. Okay, well, Trinity is like a shamrock, right? It's really just one leaf, but then there are three parts to the leaf. Well, four if you're lucky, but don't worry about that because you never find them anyway. Never mind. Well, just, okay. What is the Trinity like? God actually gave us two analogies. And they're superior analogies because they're personal, right? They're relational. The Trinity is like marriage. Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But, but they're two people. God says, but they're one flesh. And the word that he uses for one there is the same word for one as in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In other words, Deuteronomy 6 is not talking about a mathematical singularity, but a unity. But a unity. As reflected in a marriage. There's plurality of personhood. In the marriage, there is husband and there is wife, two persons. And they are equal. Both are made in the image of God. In fact, together, their complementary relationship reflects the nature of God. They are, in New Testament terms, co-heirs of the grace of life. One is not personally superior or inferior to the other. They equally and together reflect the very image of God. And yet, there's a hierarchy of responsibility in the marriage. God made Adam first and he made Eve to come alongside Adam and to work with him and to help him in this task of filling the earth and subduing it and ruling and reigning on God's behalf, but they have different roles and responsibilities. So we have plurality of persons, equality of personhood or nature, and a hierarchy of responsibility. Well, that's the Godhead. That's how the Godhead works. You have plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're distinct. They're not one person, they're three. And you have equality of nature. The Father is fully God, but the Son is also fully God. The Spirit is fully God, and one is not more God than any of the others. And yet there is a hierarchy of responsibility. The Father is over all. And he sends the Son to do his will. And the Son and the Father send the Spirit to glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify the Father. There is three in one, three persons, equality of personhood, but a hierarchy of responsibility. Those analogies work better because they're personal, they're relational, and that is the essence of the nature of God. It's the essence of Trinitarian theology. God is a relational God. And so God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. 
The second analogy we're given is the church, 1 Corinthians 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. You say, wow, Paul, you know how to write a sentence. What is he saying? He's saying there are multiple persons in the body of Christ. We're all members of the body of Christ, and you know what? We're all equal in the eyes of God. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. There's neither barbarian nor Scythian or slave or free. What Paul is saying is your value to God is not dependent upon your gender or on your race or nationality or upon your socioeconomic status. You're valuable because you're made in the image of God. So multiple persons, equality of our nature or personhood, and yet there's a hierarchy of responsibility within the church. We submit to one another, but then ultimately we all submit to the elders that God has placed in authority over us in the church. Well, that's the nature of God, right? Father, Son, Spirit, plurality of persons, equality of their nature or personhood, and yet hierarchy of responsibility. It works because it's relational, and God is, at his very heart, a relational God. And so he reveals himself first as a loving father. Now, there, there are lots of names for God throughout the Bible. Um, you know, the God who sees, God Almighty, the God who commands armies, but underneath all of that and before all of that, God is love. First John chapter 4. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Why? Because God is love. Notice it doesn't say God is loving, but God is love. It could be said about me that I am loving. Sometimes. My kids say, yeah, sometimes dad is loving and then sometimes he's not. Right? It's, sometimes that attribute of God comes out, but then other times mm, there are other attributes that seem to come out not love. We could say dad is loving, but we can't say dad is love. That isn't really the definition of his personality, but for God, it doesn't say God is loving and then sometimes not. It says God is love. And the word that John uses here, it's used throughout the New Testament to describe God, is agape. A word that's hardly ever even seen outside of New Testament literature before the New Testament was written. Classical Greek literature just doesn't show up. New Testament writers really grabbed a hold of this rare word and they unpacked it. And, and, and they, they demonstrate that it's the best description for God because it shows him as one who unconditionally loves. Or I would define it like this. To delight in without the expectation or demand of reward. Hey, agape love is, is to delight in another without the expectation or demand of of reward or receiving anything back. God is love. This is who God is. God is, in other words, outgoing. God is always out for the good of the other. God is love, and he can't be anything but love. It's who he is. Uh, this weekend, our, our friends David and Sarah D'Souza had their uh, baby, Luciana Grace. We got a picture of Luciana Grace. Beautiful little baby, Oh, I want to get my hands on her, you know. Oh, After having kids myself, I'm like, oh man, now I love babies. I didn't love them before, but now I do. I love babies. She's beautiful. And Sarah said, you know, the first thing she felt was love. She was just in love. For those of you who have had kids, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who haven't, I hope that you do someday. Because it's an emotional, unlike anything you've 
ever felt in your life before. All of a sudden, you're in love. You can't, you can't help but be in love. And this child has, has given nothing to you. Child has done nothing, and yet you, you love and you can't help but love. In fact, this child is just going to take from you. She's going to take and take and take. That's what the kids are going to do, right? going to take away sleep, going to take away your money, going to take away time, take away, you know, thousands of diapers and, and all the food you put in the mouth that they throw up. They, don't, they waste it. Just take, 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 take. And yet you love. You can't help but love. Even when they don't say thanks or love you back, there's something deep in your heart that says, this is mine. This belongs to me. This is part of me. I love You know, that's how God feels about you. Because it's not about you. It's not about, you may be one who takes and takes and takes from God and never even says thanks. And yet, God loves you because that's who God is. It's about God. It's It's not about you and how well you love him back. It's the very fundamental nature of God. Even in this very moment, God loves you because God is love. He feels this overwhelming longing to reach out to you and to draw you into himself because that's who God is. God is a loving father. What that means for us, first, is that creation was an act of love. Creation was not, in a sense, an act of power. God demonstrated his power, and when we look at all of creation, we see the amazing incomparable, really, power of God, but he didn't create to show his power so that he could have beings that the nature of their relationship with him was just that they submit to him. He didn't create to show power simply. He created to share his love. God didn't create because he was bored or lonely. In fact, for all of eternity, he was utterly and completely content and enjoying and delighting in the relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit. He didn't create because he was lonely. He created because he is love. And the nature of love is that it wants to share. And so God created objects of his affection, men and women, because God is love. Creation is an act of love. Redemption is an act of love. God created these objects of his affection which rebelled against him, and God said, I can't live with that outcome because I am love. And so he went after men and women made in his image because God is love. 1 John chapter 4. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins. That's why he sent Jesus. And notice, he says, and this is love, not that, that we love God, not that we were chasing after God, not that we were trying to find God, But that God said, no, I have to come after you. That's the nature of love. Love initiates. It goes after. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In fact, while we were even still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in a, a state of rebellion, of ungratitude toward all that God is and has done, he loved us. He came after us. Because God is love. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he loved the world to such an extent that he gave his one and only, his unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life because God is love. God is love. 
Creation is an act of love. Redemption is an act of love because God, our Father, is a loving Father. God is also a sacrificing Son. Remember, the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And the Spirit is not the Son. They are three separate persons, but they are also three equal persons. Think of the Son and its rays. You can't have one without the other. The sun is like the rays that come off of the sun. He's the radiance, we're told, of his glory. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews had in mind. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his, the Father's glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. The word he uses there for nature is hypostasis or hypostasis. It means uh, that which stands underneath. In other words, if you dig deep to get to the bottom of God, do you know what you find? Jesus. Because Jesus is fully God. And the Father's fully God and the Spirit's fully God, and yet they have different responsibilities. What is the responsibility of the Son? John chapter 6, Jesus tells us, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, This is my role. I am fully God, but my role is to do what the Father tells me to do. That's why I came. And exactly what is the will of the Father? Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, this is my role. This is my responsibility to let the Father send me to earth to take on human flesh to make payment for your sins. That's my role. Why was Jesus willing to take on that role, the role of the Son of God? John 14. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Why did Jesus obey his Father? Because he loves his Father. Why did Jesus sacrifice for your sins? Because he loves you? Well, yes, that's true. But even more than that, he did it because he loves his Father. And he wanted to obey his Father. It's Abba, Father, Daddy. I've come to do your will. I just want to please you. That's why Jesus came. First, uh, John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus. The work of Jesus is to reach out to men and women who are, who are broken, who are sinful, and maybe even hate God, and to reconcile them back to his heavenly Father. Because he wants to make a family for God. He's the firstborn son, but he wants many sons and daughters to be in the family of the Father. Because God is love, and God wants a big family. He wants every man and every woman and every child to be a part of that family. And so Jesus' job is to go after men and women to reconcile them, to reach out to them. That really is the meaning of grace. Grace means that that God doesn't sit back and wait. God initiates and God pursues and he pursues us through his son, Jesus. That's what the grace of God means. Third, God is a serving spirit. The spirit is not the son and the son is not the spirit. They're different persons. And the father is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father. They're different persons. All are equally God and yet they have different roles and responsibilities. The, serve, the Spirit's job, in a sense, is to serve the Son so the Son can serve the, the Father. So when you see Father, Son, and Spirit 
uh, on a, a, working in a particular task, so to speak, you don't see the Spirit reaching out and grasping, right, and trying to grab glory for himself. Because the Spirit is not insecure. The Spirit knows that the Spirit is fully God, and so there's not a, a competition within the Godhead. There's complete unity in the Godhead, of both of personality and of purpose. And so what does the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit tries to exalt the Son so the Son can exalt the Father. They are working together in full cooperation. In other words, salvation itself is a group project. Your salvation required Father, Son, and Spirit all working together. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, that is God the Father. He saved us. Why? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. In other words, our salvation is an outflow of the personality of God, not what we have deserved or merited or accomplished on our own. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to God's personality, his mercy. How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Well, how is it that God was able to regenerate us or cause us to be born out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Well, he did it through his son, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He poured out the regenerating spirit upon us richly through the sacrificial work of his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross and was buried and was raised from the dead. He accomplished complete payment of sin. He was given the honor and the privilege to send the spirit of God to work in men's and women's hearts to regenerate them and make them born again. Father, son, and spirit working together to save you. Now, what that means is uh, salvation is not simply get rid of your sins and get out of hell, right? Uh, Nor is salvation figuring out a way to to manage sin and sin less or sin not at all someday and be perfect. That's not it. Nor, God forbid, is salvation simply becoming healthier and wealthy on this earth, Salvation is entering into the very life of God. Okay, it is receiving and experiencing God's love for you and giving it in return. Okay. Matthew chapter 22, we talked about this last week. What is the first and greatest commandment? Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And then there's a second that's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you were made to give and to receive love. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17, verse 22. John chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus said, The glory which you, Father, have given to me, Glory is another theological shorthand word for the sum total of the the attributes of God, the personality of God, the glory of God, the glory, Jesus said, which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you have loved me. God, I want them to know that you love them just like you love me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus said, that's real, That's salvation. Salvation is is entering into the very love which Father and Son and Spirit have for one another and becoming a part of that. And Jesus said, as you experience that, then you in turn can love others that same way with that same depth and draw them into that relationship. Because that's what they long for and that's what they need. And Jesus said, that's why you remain here. That's salvation for you, and it is your mission. It's your purpose to receive and to give love. I want you to think about it for a moment. When when are you really most satisfied and most happy in life? Is it when you are taking things from others or when you're giving? It's one of the great paradoxes of life. There's something inside of us that says we need to take more, and we want more, and we reach out, and we, we grasp And we spend a lot of energy in our lives trying to take, but as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And once in a while we'll have those moments where we're just giving. We realize I'm I'm richer for giving. As I give, I'm not losing. I'm, I'm receiving more. It's a phenomenal paradox. I have to give in order to receive. I remember summer after my freshman year, I worked at uh, Pine Cove with the, the little kids, the, little, uh, the smaller camp. And I had kids for several weeks in my cabin. And then I had an off week where I was work crew. So I was serving in the kitchen. And I was making food and cleaning dishes. And then we were going and we were cleaning the bathrooms one day. And I remember I had this moment. I was down on my hands and on my knees. And I'm cleaning this bathroom that has been absolutely and utterly trashed by, you know, like third and fourth graders. I mean, it's just an absolute disaster. I mean... Just imagine, I won't even describe anymore. Just imagine, because you can imagine, I'm on my hands and knees and I I just had this moment where I was just having a great time. All of a sudden I realized, this is wonderful. I would not want to be anywhere else. Can you imagine? I I didn't want to be anywhere else. And what I realized is I, I just, I had so enjoyed being with these, these kids, most of whom didn't know Jesus And telling them about Jesus. And some of them knew Jesus and beginning to teach them how to walk with Jesus as a third grader or a fourth grader. I was just filled with joy and I thought, in this moment, I'm getting to serve them. They they will almost certainly never say thanks. They won't even notice the bathroom is clean as opposed to dirty. But I'm having this moment, I'm doing it in community with these other leaders. And I haven't felt that since. (laughs) I don't even like cleaning my own bathroom now. But in that moment... I just experienced what Jesus was talking about. This is what you're made for. You're made to receive an absolutely overwhelming, unconditional love from God. Because God is a Trinitarian God. He's Father, He's Son, He's Spirit. Living eternally in the delight of those relationships and wanting to draw you into that experience of being loved like that, just as you are, regardless of your performance. And having been filled so deeply with that kind of love, your heart just overflows and says, who can I give that love to? Who can I give it to? 
the Father and the Son and the Spirit love and enjoy each other. And created in their image, we were made to love and enjoy them. Blindly and foolishly, though, we have all turned to love and enjoy other things, things that in reality are completely unable to satisfy. But the Spirit's first work is to set our desires in order, to open our eyes and give us the Father's own relish for the Son and the Son's own enjoyment of the Father. So how do we apply this? I'll give you a couple of thoughts. First is this. I want you this week to memorize 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2. And you go, oh my gosh, that's so long. Well, it's just because it's a big font, right? It's really not that long. You can do this. Okay, just two verses. Just two verses. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. When your child is born, what is the child's job? They don't have a job yet. Their job is simply to enjoy your love, to enjoy being held to enjoy being fed and cared for and given. And the parent gives and gives and gives. That's the child's job, just to receive. This week I want you just to, to meditate, memorize these verses, and maybe this is a part of your own personal time with the Lord where you just stop and say, God, let me experience what that means, that you love me like this. And having experienced that love, Father, who do I know that needs to experience it too? I want to challenge you this summer. Pick out a couple names, one, two, three names, people that you will pray for, that you will seek out, that you will love on behalf of Jesus Christ. And what I would love to hear at the end of the summer is stories of people that you have loved with the love of Jesus Christ. And they've been brought into that love and they've experienced what God made them for to receive unconditional perfect love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as you are, we don't have to wonder or wish or dream, but you've shown yourself to us as, as a loving father, as a sacrificing son, as a serving spirit, as a God that works within these relationships to draw us into that same experience of love. Father, I pray that as we experience it, we would turn and we would love others in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's in Jesus Christ's name through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the honor and glory of the Father that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You guys have a great week.